0: All right, so I guess we got to preach a sermon now. Uh, if you're not around, we do that from time to time, and we thank you for. Uh, if especially if it's your first time, you've never met these people, uh, you're lost. Honestly, they're they're awesome, and so uh, hang around a- enough, and you'll see that, and you'll see us cry a lot more than that. So, um, turn the turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter four. We're only looking at two verses today. Verses 8 and 9 of Philippians 4. We have Bibles up here. I want you to slip your hand up if you don't have a Bible, right? If you've got the phone and you do the phone Bible app, that counts. We'll count that. If you don't have a Bible, though, raise your hands. One of these guys will bring you a Bible. We want you to follow along with us. This helps you know we're not making this stuff up, okay? Uh, And it's also good for you to have the Word of God in your hands, and it's going to be actually really practical to what we're talking about today. So, um, bring the one over there if we got it. Yep, okay. Okay. Philippians 4, 8 through 9, let me start with this. It's a quote that has been heavily influential in my own life and in the life of so many people here at Redemption Church, and it was a quote from a man named Tom Schrader. Tom was the lead pastor and founder of Redemption Church Gilbert, which used to be called East Valley Bible Church, Uh, and he passed away, uh, geez, about eight months ago now, and uh, was a near and dear friend to so many of us, so many people have been changed and influenced by his teaching, on and on. And he had so many great one-liners that I'd love to share with you. But here's one that's been really formative for the church. It's this, okay? What you know trumps what you feel. What you know trumps what you feel. Now, let me just say on the front end that some of that in our culture today, it can seem a bit harsh, a little bit, as if We're trying to discount emotion or discount feelings, and and that's not the case. In fact, we're going to talk very heavily how that's not the case today, but I don't want to lose you on the front end, because what he's saying and what the scriptures reveal to us today is very important if we actually want to have a stab at this whole gospel-worthy life we've been talking about in the book of Philippians. We saw since the very beginning that Paul was trying to craft in the Philippian church lives and followers who would live in such a way that their life would be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. We said there was four main criteria that Paul was presenting for that. One was that it would be Christ-centered, that everything would revolve around him. Two, that it would be unified with the brethren and with those around one mind, one accord pushing into God's mission. Three, it'd be secured by salvation. In other words, we wouldn't go hunting for justification elsewhere because we knew by the grace of God, he has saved us once and for all. And then the last one is that we would enter willingly into suffering, which which that one was the one we had to go into some real detail because that sounds so far from what we want to have happen in our lives. But these four markers would be the mark of a gospel worthy life. And now Paul is getting to the end of his letter to Philippians. And if you've ever written a letter, you're trying to get in those last thoughts, right? the last things to complete your argument or complete your idea so that the people that are receiving your letter would say, yeah, okay, everything you said, I buy into, I'm gonna go try and do that now. And so what we get here in these two verses is truly the summation of an argument and arc that I think has been there since the first word he penned in Philippians chapter one. And so let's read those verses once again and we'll break this thing down today. Finally, brothers, brethren, brethren, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And let's stop there. We'll come back to verse 9 in a little bit. I want to look at this verse from two levels, kind of the big picture, mountaintop level, and then we'll come down onto the ground, into the valley, right, and really see what this thing has to say to us. But set your mind. Think on these things. This this term here, we think, think, and maybe it's this instantaneous, maybe momentous, like just this one moment of mental ascent, I'll think about that for just a second. But the terminology here goes far more broad, far more deep. It's saying it's not just this moment where we say, hey, think about that. It's not just for a moment, like, hey, let me just mentally check into this one thing for this one second. Uh, The word literally means to take inventory of, okay? Has anyone ever worked retail, right? Give me an amen. So you ever do inventory, right? And you have to painstakingly go through every item to make sure it's in your store. This idea, think about these things. Guys, it's, it's not just this, I guess I got a moment, so let me go ahead and throw a bone towards these things. It's dwell in these things, It's meditate. It's sit in. It's get comfortable and breathe new air because the air you breathe outside of this is a different air. It's a different culture. It's a different word. And so Paul's saying, listen, if if this whole gospel-centered life, if this whole life worthy of the gospel, if this whole pursue and love, this whole we want to magnify and love Jesus, if all that is to be possible, set your minds, think about these things. Dwell and live in this place. Colossians 3, 1 through 2 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Psalm 1, 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You know what I mean, if, if you've been in the church for a little while, and I mean not this church, but just been a Christian for a little bit, none of this is probably all that new, right? Like, you're not thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to think about godly stuff. Like, that's just kind of natural. That makes sense to a certain degree. So the question then becomes, well, why don't we do it? Right, like, If it's so obvious to us, if it's so like, well, yeah, like obviously we're supposed to think about God's stuff. We're Christians. It's what we do. And hear me. I always say this. If you're here and you're not a Christian, thanks for being here. Thanks for engaging. Thanks for being part of this and learning and asking. We'd love to meet you on the way of this. Um, but, but specifically to you Christians, like, we hear this like, yeah, I think about God's stuff. But why are we so bad at it? And maybe some of you are like, no, I'm amazing at this. And that's great. This sermon's probably not for you. Okay? You can pray for all the other sinners, okay, that are about this, including myself. Set your mind, dwell, meditate, when, day and night. Teach these things to your children. This stuff has to be in every moment of your day. You are in intentionality checking into the things of God. Otherwise, hear me again, you're breathing in a different air. And that air will influence us greatly. So um, here's the question then. Why? Why is it that way? And I think there's four, and we'll get to the fourth a little bit, but the first three answers to how we can receive, hey, every moment of every day, intentionally move your mind and thoughts to the things of God. The first one is apathy. And I think this is the easy one for us. We're like, ah, I got stuff to do. I've got my life. I've got things I have to get done. It's, it's not necessarily a rejection. It's not, God, I don't want to think about the things of God. It's, I'm just going to do my life. I don't care enough to spend the time and engage the mental need that I'm being called to. Apathy. No big deal. Whatever. Now hear me. Our minds run all day long. Right now, I guarantee you, we've been, I've been preaching for six minutes I bet you you've thought about stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with anything I've said so far. Some people are thinking about a golf tournament that is going... (laughs) Some of you are doing that. Some of you, here's the way your mind works. This is real, okay, right? You saw I'm wearing sandals today. So you thought, oh man, sandals, that looks comfortable. And I'm only doing it because it's crazy hot in here. Again, if you're new, we don't have air conditioning in here. We didn't just not turn it on because we don't love you, okay? It doesn't exist, okay? So um, you saw the sandals. You thought, man, sandals, those are comfortable. I remember when I wore sandals two weeks ago in California on that sweet trip. Oh, but that trip wasn't that great because I got in an argument with my wife because she was telling me the right directions and I was too proud to admit that I was wrong. Directions, hmm, I have no direction in life. You know who's good? One direction. What's Niall Horan up to, right? And so you started with Vince's sandals and you've gone to Googling a member of One Direction. This is our life, right? Some of you, let's do another one. With the sandals, you saw the sandals, you said, oh, this must be rainbows. You went to three different places. You went to either a flag, the Mosaic Covenant, Or Skittles, right? And so you all, listen, this is the way if let go, our minds just begin to travel. They just do. And so we can come to a space where we're supposed to open up the Word of God and engage and learn and expect the Spirit of God to transform us, and yet we could be over here thinking about something that makes no sense in this context, because our minds just go. And when we sit in apathy, when you sit in, oh, who cares, it's fine, I'm not going to reject it, whatever, it's going to travel to places that will not aid in your formation and will not get us to being the people that Philippians has called us to be. Okay, That's the first one. The second one is a bit more intense, and it's arrogance. Some of us think, I got this. Right? I don't need to set my mind on those things because I've already got my mind set on some pretty good stuff. And I'll take care of this, Paul, I get what you're saying maybe, but what I'm thinking is better for me. I know better than God's word. I know better than wise counsel. I know better, I know better, I know better. And hear me, a lot of us live in that reality frequently. So we go through these things, think on God, thinks, well, oh, no, 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 I need to think about this instead. I've got that. That's good. Don't worry about me. I'll take care of it. The last one, the most obvious, I think, has to be humble obedience. And I so desperately wanted to have a third A in there, but I had to let it go. So A, A, and then humble obedience. Pushing, pushing against kind of the pride arrogance, and certainly pushing against the apathy of the day and saying, no, no I'm going to obey the word of God, and with intentionality, I will heed its wisdom. And every moment of every day, I will try to allow my mind to think on the things of God. Do you do that? Do do I do that? The hardest part about this is we tend to be reactors in this life. We tend to wait for stuff to happen And then we just hope that we'll react well. And let's be honest, that doesn't happen that often. What the Bible calls you and I to is that in every moment we're proactively with intentionality engaging with the things of God that we might be prepared for every good work. That we might be prepared for every difficulty and call into suffering that the book of Philippians calls us to. Otherwise, this stuff sounds impossible. You see, what, what what Paul is doing is putting this end cap to his argument that says, listen, this is all going to fall apart if we don't think rightly about who God is and we don't intentionally move towards him and the things of his kingdom. Because it's not just going to happen. What just happens is one direction. Google searches. With intentionality, we move forward. Now, Zoomed in now on this same verse, okay? Because there are some specifics here, and you wonder, did Paul set this stuff up? Like, are all these, are these eight words that are here, are they there with intentionality? Like, he's saying, hey, these are the specific. Eight. I, most commentaries would say, no, like, he's just trying to do this, this catch all. Like, if it's, if it's of God and if it's good and pure, like, pursue those things, think on those things. Because there's certainly stuff on that list that would be like, well, should I not think about that? Then, of course, you should. I' to like mentally check in, but I think we can learn some stuff specifically from the details here. And here's the reality. When we read these eight, ready? True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent and worthy. Where should our mind go? It's a classic Christian answer. Jesus. right? Dwell on, sit in, meditate upon something that is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy Jesus. Jesus, let your mind ascend, be enveloped, and brought to the person of Jesus. Because here's why Jesus, he's not just honorable. Here's what I mean. You and I define whether or not, so the three amazing people that we had up front, right, we could say a lot of these words about them, okay, that they're commendable in the work they did, but hear me, that's because they did commendable stuff, they are not commendable in the definition of it, hear what I'm saying, God is not doing just things, he is justice, Okay? He's not just doing honorable things. He is the definition of honor. We do not know it outside of him. And so on down the list. Here's why all of Paul's argument is go to Jesus, go to Jesus, go to Jesus, because he knows humanity that is fickle and sometimes gets this stuff right versus God. who's not just gets them right. He is that stuff. And he's the definition that defines it for how then we live it. Go to Jesus. The Jewish Shema in Deuteronomy chapter four, verses, uh, sorry, chapter 6 verses 4 and 5 says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Ready? Verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart... You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. When you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, This, this verse, if you're not familiar, this is massive in the Jewish religion, in their tradition. Literally, if you go, you'll find still to this day these phylactery boxes. Anyone ever seen one of these things, right? there, These black boxes that will literally be worn around the head and inside is different verses, but almost always this one, the Jewish Shema. This, this is what our faith in life is about. The Lord God is one. The Lord God is one. So love him with all your heart and mind. So, might. So they'll wear these boxes with these verses and they'll walk around with these things. Little boxes. So underneath each of your chairs this morning, just kidding. But the call to the people of Israel, hey, there's a certain way we do life. There's a certain type of of life we are to live and, and, and the law of Deuteronomy and, and, and all of right, the Torah, right? So you're talking the first five books of your scriptures. They lay out for the people of Israel, this is what life should look like. This, this is how we live. If we are to be blessed, to be a blessing to the world, this is the way we do it. And so lest we forget, let's literally wear a box on our head with the verse that we might never forget it. And so they interpret the frontlets piece. Here's what I'm saying to us today. The lens with which you and I view life at every part of your life must be God. It has to be Jesus. The frontlets of your eyes. So when you see a situation, you take it through the lens of Jesus. When you see a hardship, lens of Jesus. When you see a joy, lens of Jesus. When you see a move, a transition, lens of Jesus, lens of Jesus, lens of Jesus. Lest we forget, what does it mean for us to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ? Lest we buy into the air of a different culture that defines these terms differently, usually every 10 years. That's why we serve God. Because God's definitions never change. He is these things, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yet our cultures, the cultures of our world, they're defined by us, humanity. And guess what? We change all the time. What we like, dislike, what we value, don't value. What we think is right, wrong, and different, somewhere in between. And so all of these words, hear me, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy, meant different things five years ago than they mean today in our culture. Ten years, certainly. Twenty, keep going. We keep changing them. Why do we follow God? Because God never changes. You see, see what, what our culture will try and do is say, "No, no, no we believe that too." We, we also long for people to live lives of truth, honor, and just purity, love, right? But they're selling a different definition of those terms. And so, if you live by those, hear me, it's quite easy for us to live in contrast to the scriptures. Because our thoughts and our engagement are defined not by God, but by the world. This is why the scriptures are so massively important. This is why we meditate on these things day and night. It's why in the Jewish Shema, he says, you teach these to your children, you meditate on it when you're walking around, when you're going to bed, when you're waking up. In other words, at every part of your day, this is on your mind. And hear me, apathy and arrogance don't get you there. Humble, obedient, intentionality does. Might these things be on our mind at all times? Now, this is difficult, right? This is a difficult thing to do. We have life, we have responsibilities, hardships, and everything in between. And so that's why we have each other. That's why we have the church. It's because when I'm going to forget, you're not going to let me. I forget all the time, but you guys, like this family, these, these friends, why, do, why, why is Anthony, like, for the last like, two months since we find out Emma is leaving, like, can barely say her name? It's, it's not just because Emma has so served this body and his family well, it's because there's been this beautiful relationship form with her and his family where there has been this mutual reminding of the gospel of grace and goodness, this mutual reminding of the presence of God in their lives. The babysitting is nice. The presence of God in a relationship is what you, it's all you want. So when we forget, we have each other. Such an important reality. And Paul's going to lead into that as he transitions into this next verse. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. other words hey we're in this together you've seen me live this life now now go and and do these things practice these things and again this is not a individual hey you go and do this it's church this is a letter to the whole church in philippi you guys go and do this together this is not for the single crusader to go and be the best possible christian you can be it's church let us be the church that we're called to be what you've seen me do. What a bold statement by Paul, right? Like, hey, whatever you've seen me do, whatever I've said, you guys copy it. Like, dang, that is just, that's heavy. That's what we try at a certain degree to replicate with mentorship here at the church. We have have people who are just trying to run after Jesus and they're trying to show others how to run after Jesus, See, practice these things. It's not easy. Having, having right thoughts and then, listen, right action, right emotion, all that stuff, listen, it's, it's super difficult. And so Paul rightly uses this terminology. You've got to practice this stuff. Finley, I, I feel like I've talked about him in soccer every sermon I preached for the last five weeks. It just goes to show you how long I've waited for this moment. But. Um, but so I'm coaching his team, and again, if you've seen five-year-old soccer, it's not soccer, right? Like, God bless them, it's just this glorified, like, just running in a circle, right, with this, you know, size three ball. And so what we do at practice, they get there right away, and, and what do we start doing? We, we're not starting them doing anything advanced, Right? Like, they're not learning different moves at this point. No one's doing bicycle kicks, okay? What I have them start practice doing is literally by touching the ball with their feet, one after another. Touch, 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 and they hate it, right? Because this is the most boring thing on the planet. But we do that, and then they speed it. I'm not going to do all. start getting sweaty. I'll get weird, but we speed it up, Right? So they get used to having the ball at their feet, right? So then eventually they can move to the next thing and to the next thing and to the next thing and repetition and practice and repetition and practice. One day, my son will be the starting number 10 for Liverpool. That is the end goal. If you hear this is overwhelming, good Because if this was easy to check into, believe me, then we'd be all be doing it whenever we would want to. It is difficult, so resolve literally and and, like leave here saying, "Yeah, I'm just gonna try this, and I'm gonna keep trying this. I'm gonna keep trying to say no mind. I'm not gonna let you think whatever it's gonna think because again, it just goes. I'm going to give it its thoughts, and they're gonna be about the things of God." Lest we perish, lest we not be the people God's called us to be. There's a few areas that this happens as we kind of start winding down here. I think in areas of sin, this is big. The way you think is very big, okay? What you know trumps what you feel, and there is a sin. Uh, The second one is in in your identity slash ability, and we'll we'll cover that in a moment. And then the third one, like who God is. I think this what you know must trump what you feel has to apply to these three areas in your life. Let me give you some examples. Um, In the area of sin, and hear me, we could go a lot of different directions with this. But I'm going to go to one that I guess has just been on my nerves a little bit more recently. And it's gossip. Okay, And mostly because we tend to think, that's not that bad. And that's the lie. That's the falsehood. That's the, I understand justice. I understand truth. I understand honor and what's commendable better than the Bible. So even though the Bible says, nope, I'll still do it. He says, what you know, okay, but hear me. Maybe you don't know that. So, And I'm not even being rude. Maybe you don't realize the Bible is against gossip. Do not talk about people behind their back unless there's a certain type of relationship where you're trying to navigate their well-being and they know about it. That's real big. Otherwise, it's just dissension waiting to happen. It's division, it's mistrust, it's destructive. That's why the Bible hits on it so often. What you know must trump what you feel in that moment where you so desperately just want someone to empathize with your situation so you go ahead and share someone else's business? No. What's true is the Bible's like, no, that's, that's not what we do here. That's not what we do here. Leads us into our second one, this idea of identity and ability. I met with a a pastor friend of mine here in town. He's planned a church in the last few years, a guy I really respect, really love. And he asked me a question as we're kind of winding our time down. He says, uh, How do you, he asked it really funny, but essentially he was saying, It was like, When do you ever get used to all the critiques? And I was like, Well, what do you mean specifically? And he's like, Well, you know, the, and he just laid down kind of this laundry list of things that, he's heard from people he's not good enough at. That he did wrongly, that he said wrongly, that he didn't do in such a way that someone else thought it should be done biblically, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, honestly, man, like, I don't think it's a matter of, of getting used to it. I think it's a matter of preaching the gospel to yourself. You There's no need to get used to it. It's like, get used to the gospel being the thing that is sufficient for you. Because if you're waiting for the day for the critiques to just be fine, they're not because they're sinful. And that's actually, let me, let me backtrack. Not all critiques are sinful. Some critical comments are absolutely necessary. And hear me, if it's to me, I welcome them all day, okay? I don't know this guy's story. Some of the stuff sounded kind of upsetting, but that's his church. That's his story. So rewind. Some critical things, go for it. Some stuff where it's just slanderous and you're just coming from a place of anger and frustration and not the Bible and kindness, seeking repentance, all that kind of good stuff, yeah, it's sinful. I got off track here. What's false? <laughs> maybe it was my issue, actually. But, no, so I'm telling this guy, and I said, well, listen, what are the things you're hearing? He says, well, you know, you're the wrong guy. It should be this other person. That's the thing that's going on. Right? What's the Bible say? The Bible says, well, for whatever reason, dude, like, God put you there. And maybe, that, maybe that's coming to an end, I don't know, but God's the one that sets this stuff up. He appoints this stuff. So what else? He said, oh, well, I'm not good at this, I'm not good at this. Okay, so he begins to then understand his self-worth through a lens of people's critique. And I said, well, is that what the scriptures want us to do? What do you know to be true? So in the emotion of the moment is, I'm worthless. I can't do this. Nobody loves me. I said, what's true? God has made him worthy by what he's done on the cross, not what, I almost said his name, but this guy could achieve at his church. And no, those things, again, like there's just all these back and forth that your mind will wrestle with. There's the way that you would want to understand versus and feel based on those understandings that are constantly changing in culture versus what the Word of God actually says about who you are. And then lastly, um, in pain and understanding who God is. Now, I've talked about this at length here different times, and if you're tired of hearing it, I'm sorry, but, you know, it's just, it's just easy for me to go to, it's like the only time where... It's it's just a shifting point where I f- began to understand emotion for the first time in my life. But so, you know, like six years ago, my wife and I had a miscarriage, right? And so like, you guys know that story. And, and it was this, this huge shift for us. We, we lost this kid, and it was, it was brutal, and it was heavy, and it was just so, like, messed up and broken for my wife and I. And, and we began to just ask these questions that, like, I had never asked before about... God's love and God's purpose, and why was God doing this to me? And all my other friends were getting blessed with children that they wanted, and, and some of them didn't even want their kids. No, that sounds bad, but like, like they didn't plan on it. We were trying for one and we didn't get ours, you know? And so all these things, God, what did I do wrong? I'm trying to plant this church and you take away this kid. Like it just was this, it didn't make sense. And so all of these things, I began to think about the character of God. Doubts about listen, either he wasn't loving, at least wasn't loving to me, or he wasn't powerful, so he couldn't have done anything about it anyway. That's stuff I had never thought about in my 10 prior years of being a Christian than that. So then I had a moment to have to think about that. I began to wrestle. And so, you know, what's true in that moment is, yeah, God is loving. God loves me. God is all powerful. Like these, what I know needed to trump what was true. Now let me be very clear right now. Ultimately what I've realized is I I wanted to be sad, but I wanted to be sad about the right things. Like I, I and to this day. Like I wanna be I wanna lament and I wanna broken be broken that the fact that I this side of heaven, Verity and I don't get to know that kid. So that scar remains, the pain still remains of that, and, I, and the sadness for that, it, it's not just okay, in some ways it's beautiful showing the depth of love that I think God gives us for those in our lives. And I want to sit and in, in lament of that in the brokenness of this world that would bring about that, and not just my life, but the lives of so many. I want to be sad about it, but but I don't don't want to pile it on and say, no, I also want to be sad that God doesn't love me right now. I understand that's a wrestle, but hear me, I think this is why we intentionally practice. And for the church in Philippi, when Paul's writing this, hear me, death to Christians, persecution to Christians was not an abnormal thing. Death to friends was not like this crazy thing that might happen. Like it was going to happen. People were going to lose their lives for simply loving Jesus. Paul writes this from prison short a few years from his own death and martyrdom. So he's writing this in a context of he knows there's pain, brokenness, death, and hurt. And he's still saying, Hear me, in the midst of all that, might what we know trump what we feel? So practice it. Practice, practice, practice. Let every moment of every day be defined by your thoughts about God and who He is. Okay. Lastly, um, Here's the money verse, I think, for the whole book of Philippians, the entire book, and it's at the end of verse 9. And I think if we look closely at the book of Philippians, I think the overarching narrative and arc of the entire letter takes us to the end of verse 9, because he says, the God of peace will be with you. Now, I want to go back over some verses real quick to humor me here. Let's just do a trace over the book of Philippians. Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Philippians 2.1. If there's any encouragement of Christ. Okay, so those first few, it's, it's Jesus. It's, he's kind of distant, right? God, God's a bit distant, like he's there's a day coming where we'll be united, right? I, I so long for the day when, when I'll be out of here and I can be with him, right? And, and so there's some encouragement from him, at least. So he's, he's speaking, and I, I know what he's done and what he said, and so it's getting a little bit closer. Philippians 3.8, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3.14, I press on towards the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3:20 We await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4:5 The Lord is at hand. Notice he's getting closer and closer. Paul's, he's getting closer to his people. Philippians 4:7 And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now notice what he does intentionally I think, right? With the words here. 4:7 What is the benefit? What is the reward? What is the gift? Peace of God. Philippians 4 9. What is the gift? What is the ultimate reward? It's the God of peace. We get God. Like, wow. Right? Like, all this trending in the book of Philippians, is like, well, we can get these things of God and the kingdom's coming and, and we get the encouragement from him and one day we get eternity in heaven. Like, these are all great things. But Paul cussing, listen, live like this and hear me, the reward is God himself here and now. He's present. The God of peace will be with you. I'm dying for an amen. Like, God... Will be with you. Like is God is with us. There you go. Double that. I was getting ready to say that, David, but you stole my thunder. God is here. Makes this whole thing somewhat possible. Is he didn't stay far away? I think that since Genesis chapter 3, this has been his whole MO. How do I get back to my people? Genesis 1 and 2, life is great. God says he walks in the garden with Adam and Eve they just hanging out in the garden. Sounds amazing, okay? Three falls apart. We hide behind a bush, okay? In shame, we hide from God. We've been doing it ever since. God had to come in and say, where are you guys at? He had to come and get us. He had to go get Adam and Eve. He had to come and get us. Sends us from the garden. Our first moment to be a people outside the garden, right? A brother murders a brother. Not a great start for humanity outside the garden, And yet, in every moment, what happens? God moves closer. He presses in to the people of God. Abraham, right? Fearful, terrified. You're gonna do what? You're gonna grant us a child? Do you know how old we are? You're crazy. I can't. God moves in, presses in, shows him a covenant and a crazy ceremony. We don't have time for that, right? And says, no, 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 I'm here with you. Moses, raised up, Feels like he can't do it. Crazy story. God moves in to Moses' life. He gets a little greater of a glimpse, right? As Moses passes by, or sorry, as God passes by and Moses catches a glimpse. God moves in a little bit further. All throughout the Old Testament, it's God moving closer and closer and closer to his people. Until Jesus. But here, Jesus could be with us for 33 years. So even he had to go. So what do he do? He sent His spirit to be in and amongst His people, from this day until the day our Lord and Savior Jesus comes upon a cloud, restoring that which is broken. That there would be no longer seeing through a mirror dimly, but rather we would be in his fullness and in his presence forevermore. There you go. Okay. Amen. See, David gets it. You guys, come on. This whole thing, Paul. Like, this is the life. This is the kingdom life. This is what we do. Why and how the answer is God. It's not just the cliche Christian answer that we throw out there at church because you're supposed to say Jesus. It's because he is the answer to the what and the how. All the time, every time, in every place. If that's true, why would we ever, 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 ever allow our minds to think of anything else? Ever. Ever. God is here. Might he receive everything we can think, feel, and do. Amen? Let's pray. Yeah, we hope, we're just asking that you would help us practice well. There's just so many things to be distracted by in this world. God, so many things that our minds could go and check into and do. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would just, in everything, we need your help. But really, in this, Lord, Holy Spirit, we lean and press into you that you would shape what we think about. And, God, when we forget that there would be a brother or sister nearby that would remind us. God, would our speech with one another, God, would you refine that even? That it would be littered with fun and and humor, and joy, and sports, and, and all this stuff, but God, but at its heart and inconsistency, would it be filled with us encouraging, encouraging one another towards you, and, and who you are, what you've done, the things of you, whatever is beautiful, just, pure. God, we will forget, so God, again, we ask for you to teach us, remind us, and bring fellow brethren into our life, God to remind us always that you are here now. We love you. Amen.